0: Welcome to the Web Policy Talk podcast recorded live at the Impact and Policy Research Institute IMPRI
1: in New Delhi Go ahead, Shavit. Namaste and good evening. I, Shavi Jain, researcher at IMPRI, Impact and Policy Research Institute, extend my warmest welcome to you all to IMPRI hashtag web policy talk. Today, we've gathered here for a special lecture on environmental politics and energy policy, a just and sustainable recovery from COVID-19. This discussion. Is a part of the series, The State of the Environment, hashtag Planet Talks, organized by IMPRI, Center for Environment, Climate Change, and Sustainable Development. I would now like to introduce our speaker for today, Professor Johannes Urpilanen. Professor Johannes is the director and Prince Sultan bin Abdulaziz, Professor of Energy, Resources, and Environment at John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and also the founding director of the initiative for sustainable energy policy Isep so received his phd in political science from the university of michigan in 2009 and spent the next 8 years at columbia university Sir so, is also the award winning author of four books and over 100 report articles on environmental politics, energy policy, and global governance. He teaches action-oriented classes on energy and environmental policy to equip the next generation of global leaders with deep knowledge, advanced analytical skills, and a passion for transformational social change. As one of the world's top energy policy experts, SIR frequently advises governments, international organizations and the private sector on energy and environment. As the founding director of ISEP, SIR is responsible for the vision, strategy and general management of the initiative. His work under ISEP offers pragmatic but effective approaches to preventing providing the world's population with affordable and abundant energy at minimal environmental impact. In his spare time, sir reads biographies and tries to improve his Hindi. Our discussion for today is Dr. Hippu Crystal Nathan, who is an associate professor at Institute of Rural Management, Anand. We are deeply honored to have you both with us, sir. I would now invite our moderator for today, Dr. Simi Mehta, CEO and Editorial Director at IMPRI, to proceed with the deliberation. Thank you, ma'am, and over to you.
0: Thank you, Chavi. And uh, good evening to everyone and good morning to friends in the United States. So now all of us know that COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted an opportunity to maximize the impact of national and global energy policies while reducing air pollution and greenhouse gas emissions. So the r- importance of real world policy packages to drive energy transitions has never been felt so urgent as now. With COVID, uh, with uh, COP26 in the foresight opportunities for making amends to the past gaps remains at the disposal of the nation states. However, the question that arises is, are they ready for it? And are they ready to do it? Domestic constituencies and compulsions remain at the core of all environmental politics and energy policy. And hence, all other expectations of commitments are often pushed to the peripheries. So with this is there a light at the end of the tunnel? If yes, how long would the wait be? What are the elements of a green recovery? What are the steps that can be taken for a just and sustainable recovery from COVID-19? And what effective role can environmental negotiations play? To discuss these important questions and beyond, I welcome our speaker, Professor Johannes Ulperleinen and discussant, Dr. Hippu Krishal Nathan. I'm grateful both of you could join us today, and now I yield the floor to Professor Johannes for his lecture. Professor Johannes, over to you.
2: Excellent. Um, th- thank you Thank you very much for the uh, kind introduction and, and for the invitation to give this uh, lecture. Today, I'm going to talk about the challenge of recovery from COVID-19. From the perspective of the energy and environment. The, the background to the situation in which we are right now is that in early 2020 the, the world economy was kind of thrown into turmoil because of this pandemic. Uh, it is not the first pandemic we have seen, this has happened many times before, but it is the first major pandemic in, uh, in a long time. Uh, We've had a few scares earlier. So we had the SARS epidemic in the early 2000s. We had the uh, swine flu uh, scare about 10 years ago, but neither one of those ever became a global pandemic of massive proportion. Whereas COVID-19 spread uh, very quickly across different countries. The first observation here is that the timing of this pandemic is important. So at the same time, as we were going through the public health crisis, we were also seeing increasing problems with climate change. So um, right before the COVID-19 pandemic in early 2020, um, concern with climate change and awareness of climate change had reached an all time high with the youth climate movement, uh, with governments increasing their ambition under the 2015 Paris Agreement on climate change. So the pandemic came at a kind of difficult time because we were dealing with another slow moving, but possibly more significant crisis, which is climate change. So when we look at the recovery from the COVID-19 from an economic perspective, We always have to keep in mind that um, one of the reasons why this recovery is so important is that depending on how we do it, we'll set the stage for climate mitigation in the next 10 years. Because right now, the most important investments being made are publicly financed uh, stimulus measures. So this is the background uh, for Uh, what we are discussing today. Now, to understand what happened here and and what what the challenge really looked like, um, first, we need to understand the nature of the COVID-19 crisis. So it's very important to remember that this was not a traditional financial crisis. This was not a crisis of supply and demand where for some reason demand decreased Because demand decreased, companies had difficulty uh, keeping people employed, unemployment went up, demand decreased further. And so traditional stimulus measures were not actually the short-term need. Instead, we had a situation where many people either could not or did not want to go outside their home. And so as a result, the style of working changed. Many of the white-collar professions people started working from home in other professions, you had additional protective measures. And then of course, there were some professions like hospitality or airlines where you did have those massive layoffs because demand uh, dried up. But one of the things that we notice if we look at the initial response to COVID-19 is that governments responded to this crisis using measures that I think in many ways were quite appropriate when it comes to the economy. I think the public health management was much worse, but the economic management was in many ways quite good uh, in the sense that governments basically just gave people money. They said, look, we know you are stuck at home. You may not have a job. You may not be able to work as effectively as before. Here is some money, go and buy some things. And that helped the companies stay afloat. And in fact, one of the most challenging features of this COVID-19 recovery is the so-called K-shaped recovery where some parts of the economy are actually doing better than ever. Uh, Here in the United States, uh, we are the world's leading uh, digital economy. Uh, Netflix, Facebook, Google, Amazon, these are all American companies. Our economy overall hasn't really suffered from COVID-19 at all. In fact, many of our leading sectors are doing better than ever. But then other parts of the economy where many people are working have suffered. This globally is a misleading picture because of course, in most countries, you don't have too many companies like Facebook or Google. And as a result, in most countries, the economic damage has been far more significant. Uh, this would include India, this would include the Philippines, uh, Nigeria, uh, Pakistan. Uh, many countries have really suffered uh, from this. The few countries that have managed to avoid this without having kind of an extensive uh, tech economy are industrial uh, leaders like China and Vietnam, uh, which have managed to avoid this both by with strict control of COVID-19, but also because uh, their economies have depended on industry which doesn't require the kind of movement of people. As long as you can keep the factory going, uh, your economy will do fine. So this is an important background. And so what we need to do now is we need to look at the nature of the stimulus. What have governments done? And does it set the stage for successful decarbonization? And the answer to this question turns out actually to be quite complex um, because in the short run, we haven't actually done very well, uh, but in the perhaps we still have an opportunity. So let me see if I am able to share um, some uh, material with you. Let me just uh, see if I'm able to do this. Give me just one second, because I do have some um, something here, but let's see if this is able to show the PowerPoint. Give me just one second. Uh, can you still hear me while I'm uh, looking yes, for. yes, but you got okay, yes. perfect. So then, um, okay, now it's giving me some trouble. Give me just one second okay so this is not working so well as I was hoping. Uh, just one second, Let's try another thing. Um, okay. yeah. Yeah, okay, perfect. Um, I am trying to find my material while I this Looks like Zoom is not doing a great job with this today, but let me try. Can you share it? Okay, so what I'm trying to do now is I'm trying to share my screen with you. Okay, can you see the broadcast now? yes yes okay good um so then uh, let me now see if i can get the powerpoint on it it should work but let's just check that it actually does
3: okay
2: okay so you should be able to see the uh, a graph now right yeah yeah wonderful okay so we managed to do it okay so What I'm showing here in this graph is some research that we did at uh, Johns Hopkins with uh, my colleagues uh, Jonas Nam uh, and Scott Miller on the COVID-19 economic stimulus policies in the group of 20. So this is the 20 largest countries uh, economies in the world and this includes India of course. Um, We have three panels here and the first one looks at the structure of spending Uh, depending on whether the spending policies would increase emissions. So that is the red uh, sliver, uh, whether they would reduce emissions, that's the blue sliver. And then, uh, or if they were neutral so that there was no obvious direction, which is the gray one. And as you can see from this one, most of the policies did not have any obvious emissions impact. This is because a lot of the spending was, like I said, things like just giving people money. In the second panel, so panel B, we have the specific uh, focus on the emissions uh, reducing spending. And here, blue means direct emissions impact. So this would be things like replacing uh, fossil fuel power plants with renewable energy. Indirect emissions impact would be uh, policies where there might be some impact like improving railroads They don't necessarily reduce impact if nobody uses them but they could and then there's R&D spending and as you can see almost all of the emissions reducing activities indirect so governments made very few directly reducing um, stimulus spending efforts the final um, panel C shows the fiscal stimulus by country Uh, the curve shows the size of the spending and this is by the end of 2020. And as you can see, the United States is uh, easily the largest spender. The the European Union is important. Uh, There's a few other countries uh, as well. Um, But the key point here that I want to make is the only countries that made significant green uh, spending efforts were the European Union, Germany, South Korea, and maybe surprisingly, Brazil. Some other countries like Russia and Saudi Arabia had emissions increasing policies. The United States was mostly neutral because President Biden's reconciliation bill has not yet been passed, it's under consideration, so it's not included here. So the key point here that I want to make is that so far governments haven't made an effort at green recovery. Now, is this a bad thing? In some sense it is, right? Because we are also running out of time. We have to start reducing emissions now if we want to avoid disruptive climate change. We've already seen significant climate impacts. So the time to act is now. But at the same time, we also have to remember the nature of the COVID-19 crisis. If the main problem was that we had to get people money so that they can keep spending, so that we can avoid massive layoffs, then, for example, the US strategy of just giving money to people was not necessarily a bad start. But now the question becomes this year, Are the governments actually going to change direction and start making the investments that they need to make to decarbonize the world economy? And this is really going to be quite necessary because if we want to achieve targets like net zero, which is a target shared by the European Union, United States and China by 2050, then now is the time to take action. It takes many years for these policies to influence outcomes. So if you want to start reducing emissions by 2025, 2030, we have to pass those policies and start spending on clean infrastructure right now. We also have an opportunity because the interest rates are at a very low level, all-time lows in the world economy. So today, if ever, we have an opportunity to uh, finance these investments. So that's basically the call for action for governments is that they need to now start making these investments. Uh, This is probably the most important short term um, item on the climate agenda. And um, I hope that when governments go to COP26, they will come out with promises to significantly increase their public spending on low carbon clean infrastructure uh, toward starting a very rapid decarbonization by 2030. Now, for countries like India, uh, this is also a significant challenge. India, of course, as a country that was particularly badly hit by COVID-19, and as a country that has very low per capita emissions, the challenge in India is not so much decarbonization, but like my friend and collaborator Rahul Tongia uh, from New Delhi uh, said, non-carbonization. So the idea that India should try to avoid rapid growth of emissions. India doesn't really have to reduce emissions. They are on a low enough level that if we all had Indian levels of emissions, we would not have a big problem here. But India needs to avoid the rapid growth of emissions. And this requires investment in renewable energy, electric vehicles, energy efficiency, new low carbon steel, cement production, fertilizers, and so on. Okay. so with that, um, I, I do hope that uh, we will be able to address these challenges. There's still time, but time is running up. So now would be the time to act. And if in the next you know, six months, we don't see this action, then at that point, I would be concerned that we are losing uh, our opportunity here. And with that, I would now like to invite uh, the discussion to uh, share uh, his uh, remarks, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you.
1: Thank you, sir, Pro- Professor Nathan. Over to you. Thank you. Uh, am I audible? Yes, you're audible. Yeah. Uh,
3: so yes. Thank you, uh, thank you uh, Professor Johans, for this uh, insightful talk. Uh, well, I have uh, you know I have few points. Uh, so one is, of course, when we you know when we talk of uh, energy and climate change, I mean energy actually plays it, as you have highlighted one of the most uh, important role. In you know energy induced emissions is something which is you know, troubling you know to the climate. You talk of you talk of vehicular pollution, you talk of you know household cooking, lighting, and all. Energy or electricity appliances induced pollution, or you talk of industrial pollution. So most of the time, it is the energy sources that that decide what kind of pollutants would be and what would be the extent and severity of pollution. Now, in this, you know, in this phase, I mean, in the context of COVID nineteen, of course, I mean there is there has been a reduction reduction in the in the pollution level worldwide i mean these are, these are beautiful photographs of where the nature has taken over uh, in few places that what we got in a lot of social medias and then a lot of you know air became clean water became clean and then you know that the overall ecosystem sort of rejuvenated to to a level which was which was very pleasant but at the same time of course that was because of as you rightly highlighted, because of a lot of uh, economic activities being shut, uh, there are you know there are people who uh, you know could adapt to. I mean, as you rightly again pointed there are certain sectors which could adapt to the technology and which could and then obviously they could keep working and you know being at home and therefore they probably you know had an advantage. Of course, relative also in absolute terms, there are certain sectors which which got an advantage because of this close down. But then. As you again rightly pointed out, you know the, the sectors which are more you know people driven, where which are informal economy, where there are people to people movements. So in those sectors, obviously you know are the ones where the physical movement matters. So there are some some sectors which cannot work, you know without without physical movement. I mean, for example, you know there are many small tourist agencies who actually want people to travel. Like for example, rural tourism is one of the sector which was coming up well, uh, you know, in, in 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 recent times. And there was, you know, global sustainable tourism, national and also sub-national level rural tourism was to be promoted. But then obviously when, you know, when, when this COVID, which had, of course, a large kind of impact on the tourists in terms of, you know, in terms of, of course, movement is something which is the last thing anybody would want to have you know, in terms of risking one's life, and also the villagers themselves also shut down. I mean, they, they didn't welcome any any outsiders coming to the village. So rural tourism, of, you know, of course, collapsed. You know, during this phase, there are companies like, for example, we are the institute Institute of Rural Management, Anand. So we we you know we know like there are some some startups, some agencies which are basically you know making making a sort of good you know in terms of progress in rural tourism sector which was a new sector and which was a you know which was which would be it was clearly in the category of sustainable tourism which is like you know a tourism which would not only environment friendly but also you know make you close to the nature and also you know kind of break the divide between the rural and the urban areas and find a kind of you know kind of cohesiveness between those areas as well as also economically it was translating in terms of you know stopping migration the rural you know rural youths were getting an, another kind of employment opportunities and all that so there are a lot of social economic uh, cultural as well as you know environmental advantages to rural tourism but somehow somehow of course given the situation actually they could have certain certain organizations also had to shut down their offices and things like that. This is just an example. But you can think of many, many such examples which, which actually suffered because of the COVID. Now if we want to talk about what, what is the way forward, I think we, you know, COVID might be, you know, a, a crisis uh, which, you know, of course, we need to get out of it in terms of giving livelihood and giving the basic amenities to the people, a lot of people who, who have suffered uh, in the process i mean there are like for example uh, you know of course we say that we say that the, the 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 people i mean that for example the 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 virus would not distinguish between between rich and poor but then also we agree that the coping mechanism a rich would have or the kind of resources financial social technological resources a rich would have which the poor is deprived of so in that sense the poor would be at the, at the receiving end of the virus where the rich might might able to cope up because the region is located in an area which is well connected uh, you know, in terms of the health facilities and also could afford those, those health facilities to get over those ailments. Whereas the poor being ill-connected, being remotely placed and being also deprived of a lot of economic, technological and other kind of social resources, would be would be not able to cope up in in those in these times the one point uh, you know if we want to have a better more sustainable kind of energy path in the in the times to come so one of the things which i mean of course you did mention like india's per capita emission is low i mean it is i mean the per capita energy consumption of india is also one third of the global average it is one fourth of what is the average for China, for instance, and it is again a much lower fraction compared to Europe, some of the European countries, and of course, a much lower fraction again compared to US. Now, uh, the problem is, I don't think is is the point with per capita, because India's per capita emission is low. It is because India is a is a country which has a large section of the population who are poor and who are in a in a you know, in a, in a state of, you know, in a standard of living is, is at a very low level. I mean, they survive with very few energy, you know, energy utilities, like, for example, lighting. So, they have access to maybe like one bulb, one hut. So, it's like like that kind of thing, you know, for the whole, whole home of the household will have just one bulb or many households are still yet to be connected with electricity. Now, what is happening in, is that that Basically, in this scenario, it is the rich who is hiding behind the poor. I mean, the per capita value is low, not because India's rich is doing something very different. Per capita value is low because we have a large population base, which, which is at a very subsistence level of energy consumption.
2: And that is
3: actually driving down the per capita value to be low. I mean, we have a very large denominator. And that is actually with, with a you know, large proportion of that people. The total number of population is living in a subsistence level and therefore subsistence level of energy consumption and therefore the per capita energy consumption as well as per capita is low. So the real question is to ask is, is India doing something different, is India doing something different, you know, in terms of, you know, making its, you know, making its strategy towards sustainable energy path. I mean, I would probably give one example and then might stop. Let's take the, no, let's consider transportation sector, I mean, which is probably the largest consumer of oil worldwide, and so is with India. And India is, of course, an, unlike coal, uh, India is not endowed with a lot of oil and gas. I mean, if you see uh, India's reserve to production ratio in oil and gas, you know, is roughly roughly 20 to 30 or around that number of years, whereas in coal, coal reserve to production will be more than 100 years. So uh, in that sense, we are you know, more than ninety percent of our coal is actually imported. And if you take actually reserve to consumption ratio, I mean that way, you know, if you just, I mean, that is generally a term which generally not calculated in the energy report. I mean, be it uh, international energy agencies, World Energy Outlook report, and other other kinds of global as well as national report. Our to, reserve to consumption ratio is something which we don't calculate. I mean, which is an important indicator. I think should be computed which is which goes on to say that if you use up all your reserve for your own consumption, that means if you are not dependent on import, how long the you know, the reserve would last and that if you calculate for coal and gas, it will be just you a single digit number for India. So, that means we are heavily dependent on the world uh, for for our transportation sector which is dependent on oil. Now uh, given the transportation sector. now. So the question is, are we doing something different? That means, are we promoting public transport? So, if we say promotion of public transport, it doesn't mean that people would not, you know, own cars to start with. Maybe when you are transitioning towards a more sustainable transportation system, you might not expect immediately that people will, you know, not like to have their cars. But as a, you know, if, if you ask any transportation researcher, he, he would, or she would say, that we don't want that people don't buy but people don't use it in the sense people for the regular use like suppose you are you know taking your child to the school you are going to office and you are you know going to market and those kind of regular activities you don't use your car i mean you basically tend to use it more for maybe recreational purpose or some family health emergency and things like that so now the question is when people would use Public transport, obviously, people would use public transport, then the, the facility should be adequately available. Like, for example, if you see one of the cities which we know take a pride of, we always say it's the eighth owner of the world, the local trends of the city of Mumbai. So if you see, obviously they are they are very highly congested, but then they actually provide almost 60-70% of the transportation load of the city. But then the Mumbai has come forward, I mean come forward with some kind of infrastructural development in terms of connecting the local trains, local stations with bus stops. So they have now, for example, overhead bridges, which where if somebody, you know, lands on the bus stop, then basically you take a bridge and you land into the station and, and things like that. I mean, and obviously those who will avail the public buses, they they need to walk from home to the nearest bus stop. For that, you need, a, 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 a secured safe footpaths. So whether you we we have that. I mean, you might find in Indian cases, many cases the bikers actually you know get into the onto the footpath and they right. So sometimes they are not safe. So the, what what the idea is basically what I'm saying is, you know, absolutely not new. I mean, Bogota has shown this. You know, some of you definitely might know. Uh, the Colombian capital Bogota has shown how you know bus transportation system can be developed so that you actually ultimately land in a situation that you think your car is actually the liability not an asset. I mean you so the development as the Bogota's former mayor would say that development is actually for the people you know not for the cars and 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 again quoting from his statement is like you know you say a country to be a developed not the country where the poor use cars but the rich use public transport so the question is whether we are developing our public transportation system to the level that actually people people would use it. but if we are not doing that if you're not doing that then what would happen i mean that has happened also if you if you also see in your experience the rich families they have multiple cars they have multi-multiple houses i mean and they have obviously in, in energy literature, we call something as a rebound effect, So, which is basically because the energy systems are becoming more and more efficient. So be it like efficient transportation fuel or be it like now the monitor which you use, I mean the current monitor which I'm just in front of me in my institute where I'm speaking from that monitor is an LED monitor for instance. Now these monitors are very less energy consuming compared to the CRT cathode rate tube monitor, which you used to have in our computers. The same has happened to the TV, but then what has happened is the TV screen size has increased. I mean, what a efficient or the five star TV has led to, you, you might know the Bureau of Energy Efficiency has come out with this star rating for more energy efficient appliances. Now, customers are purchasing energy efficient appliances, but they are also purchasing large sized appliances, for example, the TV screen size has increased. So that means at the end of the day, we are actually end up consuming more and more energy. So like, for example, we have converted our living room to a room theater and we are, you know, going for bigger cars or you are driving more, I mean, those, you know, so efficiency, which was Efficiency, which was expected to lead to a, you know, a kind of an inverted U. I mean, just looking from your side, if I just plot between development in the x-axis and energy consumption in the y-axis. So, you know, I was expecting that it would go as an inverted U. That means, you know, initially with the development, the consumption would increase, but then afterwards, the efficiency would take over and the final consumption would decrease, but that has not happened. What has happened globally, if you see what has happened globally, is a straight U in the sense. Efficiency had its role, like when people move from solid fuel to liquid and gaseous fuel. The final consumption decreased, but for a for a for a less amount of time. And then, because of the you know, uh, because of what I said initially, is because of rebound effect. As well as because of people's aspirations for positional goods, the like goods which we call which are basically status symbol goods is something which is people are going for more conspicuous consumption or luxurious consumption, which is actually. Increase the energy use. So I think whether whether be pandemic or not pandemic, so what we need to actually have our energy, you know, energy and environment, you know, pathways for 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 the future to go transition to a low carbon pathway is to look into these factors. See, there would be the point is. I as an individual can have choices, but my choices would be limited. There would be some societal choices or the national choices. Like for example, if I some simple example can be, if I go to a go to a complex or a shopping mall, whether I would use the escalator or whether I would use the you know, normal normal uh, you know uh, you know which is not being energized, a normal kind of uh, you know uh, steps is something depend upon whether the steps is available. If I don't make that steps available. If you don't make public transportation system available, if you don't make footpaths available, if you don't make biking tracks available, which is clearly as you know Professor Johans was mentioning about EU or European countries doing good because those are the things which are made available. You, are, you have specific cycle lanes in the road so that people can you know cycle as, as much as they want so that if those things are not made available even if a energy conscious person cannot you know you have to rely on if you're, if you have a high level of local air pollution people don't want to come out of their ac cars so it is as as simple as that so so therefore there are certain societal or national level decisions which are to be made to you know bring the you know the path to the sustainable uh, you know sustainable way of you know whether it is energy induced emissions or you know overall environment and climate change issues so if we make those decisions, whether it is pandemic or not, we would be even without a pandemic also, we would probably move towards that. If you are not making it, then obviously we, we are into the same you know, trap because once the, the, you know, the country becomes richer and richer, once the middle class or the lower middle class have more and more income, then obviously aspiration you know would increase and they would have more and more consumption, the luxurious goods, having four four wheelers in their agenda. As a, as a matter of status as well as, uh, you know, as a matter of necessity also, so that way actually we are not going to lead anywhere, we are basically, you know, just having a time lag uh, in, in terms of what US is having or other, other developed countries. So we, I think we need that fundamental change uh, in terms of some national decisions as far as India is concerned, learn from some of the European countries which have taken uh, these uh, you know conspicuous consumption seriously and have promoted, you know, be it about renewable energy, be it about other 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 incentives to like for example, Germany, uh, you know, if you are, if you are staying in a smaller house, you you are more incentivized to stay in a smaller house. In the sense the, the relief which you get, tax relief, etc. What you get is 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 slightly relatively higher. I mean, of course you pay less if you are staying in a smaller house, but you pay still less, further less, because actually your your Consumption of energy would be less in terms of space sitting, etc. So until or unless we make those steps and make people to move towards more sustainable consumption, otherwise we, we will not able to achieve achieve this. Might be the pandemic is just a, you not know, just a, uh, you know, kind of I would say, uh, you know, just a, just an accident. But again, we will be in the same path, you know, in terms of high carbon consumption and high energy consumption. Thank you.
0: Brilliant points you've raised, sir. Thank you so much. So I would invite Professor Johannes to respond to uh, uh, Professor Nathan's uh, comments.
2: Uh, absolutely, uh, th- thank you uh, for the insightful discussion. I, I think those are all uh, useful and, uh, and valid points on the, on the situation. Uh, a few reactions. Um, the, the first one is I, I'm glad that you brought up the the sort of uh, issue of environmental improvement uh, during the pandemic. I think the key point is exactly what you are saying is that the pandemic itself resulted in a kind of a short-term improvement in air quality and a small reduction to the tune of four to 8% in greenhouse gas emissions. But if we want to achieve our decarbonization targets, we would need to repeat those emissions every every year. Those emissions reductions every year. On top of that, the emissions have already come back, and it looks like uh, we are already back in 2019 levels, and next year we will most likely exceed those levels. So the pandemic itself doesn't do anything to help us, and that's exactly because we don't have structures in place to in the Indian situation. It is true that even though the Average per capita emission is low. If you look at the per capita emission for different types of households, you would see fairly high levels of emissions for the middle class and even lower, much lower emissions for the vast majority of the Indian households. So that inequality and kind of lack of equity within the country is also very important. Where I think we have to be kind of careful is while things like energy efficiency, public transit can reduce our emissions and avoid future emissions growth. I do think the nature of the problem has changed in the sense that now in the next 30 to 40 years, 50 years maximum, I think almost all of the world will need to be basically at close to zero emissions so that's why it's important that we also promote the use of technologies that are truly emissions-free and so for example public transit is important for a number of reasons not just for environmental reasons it's more efficient it's more affordable but at the same time i don't think there is kind of a likely scenario where the middle class would stop uh, driving their own cars That, that seems to me that that would be an extremely difficult long-term transition. Um, And so I think it's essential that in the next 10 years, we move away from uh, gasoline-fueled engines and diesel-fueled engines and start driving electric cars, because that way we can achieve our goals combined with the decarbonization of the power sector. So reduction in the use of coal of uh, zero emissions. So I would imagine that Addressing this challenge it will be a combination of some behavioral change, technological progress, and significant policy and regulatory changes, both in India and elsewhere in the world. The good news is that today, these clean technologies are so much more affordable and competitive than they used to be, that the trade-off between the kind of economy and environment is less stark. It's still there, and I think it's fair and just for Uh, the Indian government and for other governments of poorer countries to remind the wealthy countries that they need to lead the way, they need to provide financing to help. But in the end today, there's a real opportunity, I think for the first time, to have truly sustainable uh, economic growth. So that I think is the exciting opportunity uh, for our time. Thank you again for excellent uh, responses.
0: Thank you so much, Professor for your reactions to Professor Nathan's comments. So, you know, just now you had mentioned about equity and, uh, and equality. So taking from there, I am quite interested, you know, since I am also trained in political science, you've spoken about the individual government efforts in the visual that you shared. Where do you see the scope of the general will, um, which has been highlighted by uh, John Jacks Russo Can there be a social contract of sorts um, for a just recovery, especially when it comes to COP26 and even uh, beyond that? And would this kind of a justice be alluded to uh, where, I mean, would this kind of justice where citizens are the ultimate beneficiaries be... uh, attainable, because uh, there is this whole dimension of common but differentiated responsibilities. So where is this social contract? And how are we even thinking about it? Uh, If you could talk uh, talk about it for a bit?
2: Yeah, so uh, this is an excellent question. Um, The way I see the situation is that there is some possibility of a changing social contract within countries, so individual countries. We see in the United States, for example, uh, there is possibly, if the reconciliation bill moves forward, an opportunity to change really the the way the society works in in many, many different ways. Similarly, in in Europe, there are many countries that are already moving in that direction and that have sort of reached the point where it seems that kind of economic advancement is not the primary concern for most people anymore, which is kind of interesting. I don't think we've seen this ever before anywhere in the uh, since the industrial revolution. Um, at the global level, unfortunately, I don't see a lot of suggestion of the same thing happening. So if you look at the COVID-19 crisis itself, um, the wealthy countries developed these very effective vaccines very early, They don't really cost that much. And the cost of vaccinating the entire world with this technology was probably less than $100 billion. So we could have saved millions of lives, but we didn't, right? And now in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, there's a lot of talk about vaccine racism, where these governments are rightly blaming the the wealthy countries for their failure to Uh, provide this global benefit, which would have, like I said, probably saved millions of lives uh, directly. We also have an unprecedented level of geopolitical competition uh, between China and the United States. The relations are at kind of a low point. Uh, I don't think they've been this bad since 1989 and the Tiananmen incident. Um, We also have this turn to more sort of majoritarian ethnic democracy, Brazil, Turkey, India also, right? Where nationalism is an increasingly powerful political force. So I think we are actually going to face more of a situation of global competition, where the way we, if we can solve this problem, it's because the major powers compete for their clean technology uh, progress and the markets and uh, cooperation will be kind of limited and, Specific on specific issues. I hope this will change, but I I do think right now the global situation is unfortunately kind of going in the opposite direction of a genuine uh, global uh, social contract.
0: Sure, so certainly that is um, well taken. So this would again mean that uh, the lesser developed economies, you in fact mentioned the top 20 uh, economies of the world in the visual. Uh, so the lesser developed economies and even the developing economies, they would be you know, left uh, far behind them. So the efforts to ensure sustainable energy for all um, could have had significant climate and air pollution benefits. But uh, how do these left out economies um, and nation states attain the, attain the that stage where uh, you know, the, the other countries have already started to tread upon, then this would mean, sorry,
2: yeah, please go ahead. Please finish, I'm sorry, I thought you,
0: yeah, so actually, yeah, then I was just concluding by saying that this would mean further inequities into the system, so it would not be just again, right? That
2: that is correct, so unfortunately, it is true that, uh, like I, I said in my remarks, the recovery from uh, the COVID-19 economic crisis has been extremely uneven uh, with, with some countries like the United States, basically not suffering at all at the, at the average level, even though the public health cost here has been absolutely terrible, but the economic cost has been pretty minimal. Uh, and other countries really absolutely being uh, uh, in, in very serious trouble. And so I think that the challenge here is that for many of the poorer countries, traditionally their model Economic economy growth was this kind of like export-oriented uh, uh, industrial growth. And we've seen many remarkable success stories. The, the two countries come to mind sort of recent times are Vietnam and Bangladesh. Uh, so we, Vietnam obviously right now is one of the world's leading industrial uh, countries. And Bangladesh is by now on per capita basis the wealthiest country in South Asia after Sri Lanka, right, which is an incredible achievement for a country that started from uh, the lowest level of them all. Um, But the question then is, how do you go from here with automatization, with increased concern for kind of local production of industry? um, It's it's going to be very challenging. And I I, I do, I'm very concerned about the the economic situation. I I think that COVID-19 has been a terrible setback for efforts to reduce global poverty. So there is a real risk that we will make progress on issues like climate in this competitive mindset, but uh, in terms of poverty alleviation, uh, it does look very challenging right now. And I don't have an obvious obvious answer. Um, I, I do think the sort of way to really think about, I, I think governments around the world need to take a hard look at the countries that have done well. Uh, so I would, if, if I was a, in, in the government of a kind of a least developed country, the first thing I would do is I would jump on a plane and go to Bangladesh and study, what did you do? How, how did you achieve such incredible economic growth? There's something the Indian government should also do. I know they don't want to hear this, but uh, really sort of looking at the success stories and what can be learned. uh, Because there are some countries that are going to come out of this crisis well and uh, will continue to grow. So we need to learn from them and figure out how to replicate that success.
0: Sure, yeah, (laughs) Uh, that's right. Uh, So you all, um, you know, in... uh, in the lockdown uh, pandemic-induced lockdown phases, um, the agricultural and farming sector also continued um, in its in their uh, you know the the phase the, in the in the way that they were uh, actually happening. But since this sector is also one of the highest emitters of greenhouse uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, what was observed in your analysis, if at all, um, in, the, in the government efforts that were undertaken by all these 20 countries? Um, and what are the steps that should be taken or that should go into towards achieving sustainable growth?
2: Yes, so in, in terms of agriculture, I, I don't think we actually saw too many policies aimed at agriculture. And that's again, because most of the policies were more like direct, kind of uh, financial relief and they were often not sector specific. In terms of what we need to do, um, there's really a few different ways to answer this. One of them is that of course a lot of the kind of deforestation and land use change is concentrated in specific countries. So Brazil in particular is essential and unfortunately the current government of Brazil has made it very clear that they have absolutely no interest at all. It's really quite terrifying how. Uh, they are almost like openly aggressive saying that, watch us and we will burn it down, right? Um, which, is, which is very, very concerning uh, for, from a global perspective. Um, the big opportunity that we have today is plant-based food, right? So for the first time ever, we are in a situation where demand for alternatives to meat is actually growing. Uh, and that is because we now have these products that have kind of some characteristics of meat. So they're appealing to the Western consumers, let's say and middle-class consumers, but that don't have the same environmental impact. So my thinking is that if we can promote those kinds of foods and if they become kind of normal in the sense that people buy them uh, instead of buying the beef in particular, then I think we have an opportunity. I think agriculture and deforestation are going to be the most difficult challenges in the end, because there's so many people. This, uh, food is a very kind of basic, basic thing that we're always going to need. People have very kind of uh, fixed tastes and palates. They are used to eating uh, certain things. and um, so it's going to be a challenge. But with these new plant-based alternatives, I, I think we can we have an an opportunity. But in the end, I, I do think here we have to. I don't sort of like, you know, generally kind of blaming individual countries or governments, but I do, unless countries like Brazil and Indonesia really take the lead, I, I think it's it's going to be tough because so much of the disruptions right now is happening in in just a handful of, of those countries.
0: True, absolutely. Thank you so much. So we have two questions also from the audience. Um, if I may take them. Uh, One is from uh, Saurabh Thakur, who thanks you for the presentation. His question is related to the path dependence, both organizational and infrastructural, within energy transition debates. Do you think that the economic impacts of COVID-19, especially for developing nations like India, is likely to downgrade its climate ambitions? increase its dependency on carbon intensive energy sources and kick the global energy transition targets further down the road. So this is very pertinent in fact. So if you could respond to that.
2: Yeah, so I, I think the, the path dependence is very important that uh, this kind of idea of carbon lock-in where we're so used to kind of uh, be building on, on fossil fuels and we've spent the past 300 years building a fossil fuel-based economy but at at the same time i I do think now for the first time there are some signs that we might be able to break away from from this both organizational in in the sense that i I don't think there's ever been a time before where kind of energy professionals across the board are talking about net zero emissions or decarbonization 10 years ago that was a very niche conversation today it's completely mainstream um and at the same time We have seen uh, countries like India have done a great job, for example, renewable energy. Uh, We've seen electric vehicles very successful in China and in Europe. So I I think there is a path dependence is is one of the reasons why we we haven't made more progress. But I think now, if ever, we finally have an opportunity to possibly get out of it. And just yesterday, for example, China announced that they are going to stop public finance on uh, new coal-fired power plants around the world. So that decision alone goes a long way toward breaking the path dependence.
0: Absolutely. So um, the next question by Nimisha Pal is uh, quite interesting again, um, since uh, even uh, professor Nathan also alluded to the wonderful nature and and scenes that we were able to witness uh, during the lockdowns that it is clear after the aftermath of COVID that the shrinkage of economic activity has had substantial impact on the environmental pollution levels, although it was temporary. Would keeping the economic Activities to an appropriate level, instead of keeping it to an upper and um, you know open upper boundary, be more effective towards climate resilient development. Perhaps COVID could be a guiding light for future growth profiling and consequent environmental impacts. So, what uh, do you have to say about that?
2: Well, I actually don't think that it's it's uh, it's going to be a good solution uh, because we have to get to zero. We cannot get. Our economic activity to zero, okay. right? In fact, e- even during COVID nineteen, maybe we saw a, a few, like max, like ten percent decrease at the, at the very worst moment, right? That's nowhere well near enough. We have to do ten times that, right? We have to get to zero. So I think it is absolutely necessary that we move to a truly net zero impact economy, and then the size of the economy will be driven by the constraints set by that equation. But I, I think the primary goal should be to decarbonize the way we do things um, the other issue with economic again this become I, I can see some sort of ethical case for limiting consumption in the United States or in Canada but again I don't see that case for India except for the middle class right so uh, out of the 1.3 1.4 billion people there's maybe what max 100 million even less than that who should be reducing the rest in my opinion, need to be increasing their consumption very significantly because right now they are living very difficult and insecure lives because of the uh, lack of uh, economic development. So I think we may face a time of low economic growth, but that cannot be our primary solution. We absolutely have to get to a decarbonized economy
0: absolutely thank you so much sir so to move towards the end and uh, also the way forward round i would also request professor nathan to uh, respond to this question uh, what, i would like to hear your perspectives also on uh, on this and also your perspectives on the way forward and policy suggestions on how are we going towards how can we move towards a just and sustainable recovery professor nathan over to you uh, please unmute sir please unmute
3: yeah, okay. yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I will, uh, you know, as a, as a way forward, I was thinking that one of the points which got discussed, you know, about the common but differential responsibility. So, uh, recently, we, we did one work where this point was, you know, the common but differential responsibility, which is there at, the, at an international level. I think we need to bring out, bring that same point to the, you know, within the country level, in the sense, so at a national level, that must be also common but differential responsibility. In the sense, if urban areas are the one which are responsible for high consumer regime and more polluting the climate, then what it is why the rural areas are the bottom do it, you know, solar installation, not not the urban areas as much. I mean, the point is that if you if you take for example renewable energy technologies like for example you know solar PV uh, based electricity system to remote locations then what happens is you know when the systems go out of order I mean so far limited uh, you know field experience what I carried out from that experience let me say it has created a kind of graveyard of technologies in the sense those systems have worked for a few months and then it has gone dysfunctional and there is lack of supply chain lack of human skills, to bring those systems back into the order. And there are also other kind of uh, you know, issues people have faced in terms of stealing of, of those panels, stealing of the batteries. Even a few batteries go out of order and the systems are such they basically go dysfunctional because they also, you know, those installations also do not take into account the aspirations of the rural consumers in the sense. The rural consumers also want to have you know similar level of electrical appliances, TV and feature into their houses. And that, whereas the systems are meant for very small, small amount of load per household. So as a way forward, I think we need to bring in this, you know, common but differential responsibility within the country so that the people who, I mean, because it is very unfair at one end when the, when the, you know, cities, for example, I am sitting in a place, you know, in an institutional setup, where I switch on the light, I don't bother where the energy is coming from. It might be coming from nuclear, it might be coming from hydro, it might be coming from coal thermal plant, I don't bother. But if you go to a rural area, you want the rural consumers not only to be the consumer, but also has to have the, you know, biogas plant or, you know, electricity, you know, managing a solar home lighting system and things like that. So they're not only the consumers, they are also the producers, managers of of energy systems, which is something which is I think completely unfair. So they also need to be treated as as consumers. So while we're putting the or you're feeding the urban areas with the tested, conventional, convenient, cheap energy systems, you are you know untested, uncertain systems we are trying to push into the rural areas. And that has actually led to some kind of problem. So what I'm trying to say is as a way forward, if we if we policy-wise, if we if we do, I mean, as I was mentioning in my initial remark to Professor Johan's talk, was something where you, you know you make people to use public transport more. You make conspicuous consumption so you know prohibitively, you know, uh, you no know, kind of uh, you know high cost so that less and less people go for that. And and you we have to make we have to make public investments and things which are more affordable as professor johans was mentioning which are more affordable and then then obviously you know like, like it is possible i mean i would you know humbly disagree with one of the points which professor johans was mentioning that it is a long way it is not a long way i do believe suppose you you have mass bus rapid transportation system and if i am in my car and i am stuck i am seeing there is a there is a bus which is going faster there is a separate lane for buses and it is going faster and it is making me reach my destination much Months in a very shorter time. Then obviously next day I will have my car in my house and I will I will board the bus. If the bus bus is I mean I mean that's how that's how I was trying to tell you the story of Bogota. That's what exactly happened. Of course, the mayor lost the election because the rich didn't support who were basically the capital city they didn't support him. But but that is beside the fact. The fact is the city became more sustainable in terms of its transportation system. So, um, uh, so, so this is something I think is a way forward. I mean, you can achieve it. You can achieve it in a few years. I mean, if the if the if the if the government wants to do it, I will just make one last point. I know that, but the government, unfortunately, you know, would not be interested in these kind of things because these are basically like, for example, if you compare in India's, you know, hundred gigawatt solar target by next year you would find that the rooftop solar, actually, which was given a 40 gigawatt you know, target, whereas utility solar, which is given 60 gigawatt target, the utility solar installation are on path, whereas the rooftop system, which are smaller systems. See, small ticket business don't reward the government. Small ticket business actually, which is like development of the people for the people as something which is good for the society, but then that is not very attractive for the government. Government actually go for a large scale plant, which probably, you know, has a, a, you know, or has some vested interest of certain stakeholders. So this is something, so you have to, you know, we have to have a departure from that. We have to have, have to go for, you know, smaller decentralized systems and have an ecosystem for that. And that actually would be the way forward. If we do that, if we do that, then obviously I don't think, uh, you know, I mean, for example, my previous institute where I used to work you know, before I joined in my 2018 October has a hundred kilowatt system on its rooftop. You just identify 1 million such sites in India, which is plentily available, and you can have 100 gigawatt in three months, you don't need even seven years to, you know, achieve 100 gigawatt. But these are smaller systems, small players, local players would be involved, not, not the other reason number be involved in, in these these plants. So I think that is the way forward if you the way forward is to, you know, go for those decentralized energy-based systems that would basically take care of most of the sustainability aspect which were discussed in the talk as well as, you know, giving the your cases. Thank you.
0: Thank you, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, Professor Johannes. over to you for your concluding remarks. And uh, also, if you could just, I mean, uh, I'm just taking, uh, you know, advantage of the time and also uh, you, you spoke about the solar um, energy and harnessing the uh, solar, um, you know, the whole thing. So do you think that, uh, you know, because most of these panels are being manufactured um, mostly in China, and uh, of course there is scope for other places as well, uh, the the time, the period of the, for which it really works is like 25 years. And then there is no effective plan Towards its uh, proper disposal, that might also further create some issues uh, down the line. If uh, that could also figure in your way forward.
2: Yeah, over to you. Yeah. So, um, so yes, so, so let me uh, conclude. I, I think it's that there's many different ways to achieve decarbonization goals. But I do think, and I, I sense here there's some disagreement. Uh, I, I do, the goal in the end has to be a, a net zero system. Um, if The reality is that global warming will continue as long as we are not in a net zero system. So we're gonna have to get there at some point. Otherwise, at some point, the planet is, is really just going to, going to burn. It will take more time for some countries, and I think it's totally fair for a country like India to kind of request more time and uh, starting from the low basis, but that needs to be the goal. Whether it's small systems, big system, public transit, I think is much less important. What is really important is that we go to a net zero system. And any plan that doesn't get us to net zero in the next 30 to 60 years, depending on the country, I, I would not support that plan. The plan needs to be to get to net zero. Other than that, very flexible. You like big systems, go for it. You like small systems, go for it. Public transit, I'm all for it. That's what I use. You like electric vehicles, do it. It's really, that's not any of my business, how the Indian government, how the Indian people decide to live. as long as we get to that net zero at some point. And again, realizing that countries like mine, I'm a Finnish citizen, but I live in the United States, we need to move first. We need to be there. We need to be at net zero 20, 25 years before India. So I think that is the game plan in the long run. Um, in terms of dealing with things like recycling, solar panels, batteries, is actually a bigger problem because they have more hazardous uh, content in them. That's something that we need to plan. But I don't think that's a reason not to use these systems. Because in the end, these systems are still going to have a much lower impact fossil fuels and it's not even close we're talking about five percent ten percent of the environmental impact and once we really make these investments once we get the energy industry to really move in this direction capitalism has many problems but one thing it's really good at is innovation when it has the right incentives so once we have the next generation the next 20 30 million energy professionals thinking about problems like this we're gonna find a lot of solutions that we did not even think of. We have launched a new degree here at Johns Hopkins, Master of Arts in Sustainable Energy, where the goal is exactly to train this next generation of professionals. So I'm optimistic that if we really make a strong commitment and move fast in that direction, we will find solutions to these problems. We found them before, and we will find many more as we move forward. So I'm optimistic if we make that commitment, the technological and economic problems we can solve. But we have to make the decision to uh, start moving.
0: Absolutely, thank you, sir. So, um, can, I mean, I would be ending this uh, brilliant discussion with your optimism and also uh, taking this optimism forward uh, and uh, propose the formal vote of thanks, wonderful discussion and some brilliant reactions have also come. And um, I think we need to move in, the, in this direction that yes, we have to attain uh, the net zero, however it is. And so we need to roll up our sleeves and um, what best can happen, you know, because COVID has already given us so many, so many um, lessons that can, we can actually move forward with. So thank you so much on behalf of impli Center for Environment, Climate Change and De- uh, Sustainable Development. Uh, this wonderful State of the Environment Hashtag Planet talks with uh, our speaker, Professor Johannes Upperleinen and our discussant Professor um, Hipunathan for your time and um, all those who attended here on Zoom and also watching us live on Facebook and also would be watching us later on YouTube and um, also listen to us on our uh, podcasts. So thank you so much. It was wonderful learning from you. And we hope that we continue to keep learning and keep uh, talking about this important, uh, important theme. So thank you so much. I wish you all a very good day. Thank you.
2: Thank Thank you for having me.
0: Thank Thanks. you, sir. Thank you. Bye.
2: Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, Professor.